Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 90% of American businesses are family-owned or controlled. This also rings true with industrial businesses, which are often multi-generational companies aiming to continue the legacy of their familial founders while keeping their business on pace with industry advancements. So how can business leaders effectively balance those two goals? Today, I'm joined by Michael Ayrton, former CEO of Canax and the current president and CEO at the Rodon Group. After assuming the lead of plastic injection molding company, the Rodon Group, in 2008, Michael needed to balance the goals of his third-generation family business while also handling the impacts of the recession and incorporating automation, robotics, and advanced design capabilities into the brand's production process. We'll discuss how he maintained the family's mission-driven legacy, what strategies he adopted to improve sales, and how you can apply similar approaches at your own multi-generational industrial business. Hey, Michael, we're thrilled to have you on the Thomas Industry Update podcast. Why don't you take us through your background and, and what did your career path in the industry look like? Well, I've uh, taken a winding road to the manufacturing business. Uh, I've been working part-time since I was 13 years old in one form or another, but started out, I guess, my formal career, went to law school, started out as a corporate litigator, then went in-house chief litigation counsel for Toll Brothers, the public home builder, stayed there for about a decade, then did some regional land development work. And then from there, you know, this as the Rodon Group, which is what we're talking about today, is a third-generation family business. And so my father-in-law is the second generation uh, of that business. And he was approaching a certain time in his life where he was trying to take a little bit of a step back uh, and was evaluating whether or not at that point to sell the business, to turn it over to outside people, or, or did we have an interest in the business? At that time, Rodon was also had two businesses at the Rodon Group and the Connects Toy Business. And so I came in as general counsel of both businesses and then with the plan to sort of lead the charge of both businesses as the years went on. And so that's what happened of sort of in 09, became CEO in 09 when the Great Recession happened. Always a great time to become CEO when the recession happens because <laughs> uh, you get to make all kinds of changes, right? You're forced to make all kinds of changes. Sort of put both Rodon and Connects on a sustainable growth path. And then, you know, I sold the Connects business in 2016 to private equity. And we still continue to manufacture all the Connects parts at Rodon. So that's the short version of, of how I got here. Been an exciting almost 30-year ride from, I guess, when I graduated from law school. I love your story. It's unique. You know, I don't, I don't know how many former corporate attorneys are running a manufacturing business, you know, in, in, uh, yeah. in the market. Michael, was there a moment in time over that, you know, nearly 30 years where the kind of manufacturing business got in your blood? Because you didn't grow up with it. You, you, you married into a family that, that it was the family business. Was there a moment where all of a sudden you realized this was in your blood and it made sense to you? It did. It was really in the at Toll Brothers where I learned that I liked the prospect of making things. You know, at Toll, uh, Tens Toll to this day still manufactures homes uh, largely and then puts the kits on site and then they're constructed by, by the groups in the field. And what I loved about the business side of the business was creating things that were useful to people. Certainly houses is obviously an easy one. It's where people tends to be people's largest investment and where they spend their lives and where all their good memories are happening. So I, I liked that we were were making things that were really useful to people. And, you know, so when the opportunity came up to do deal with Connects and Rodon, I felt like that's 
another great thing. We're building things and we're making things that people either are using in a business environment, because that's what Rodon primarily focuses on, or it connects at the time that are you know, solving for kids' creativity and giving yeah. them tools for creativity that they can really use and set them up for the years ahead. And so both of those were sort of seemed like the natural next evolution of what I was doing while I was at all. Yeah, it's a fantastic example. There, there's a rising amount of research that's suggesting that the millennial generation in particular is souring on pure knowledge work and, and wants to be involved in something that you just said, making something. In, in your case, these are products and services that are enabling businesses and, and homeowners and, and construction and that kind of those kinds of areas. But there's a growing amount of evidence that a lot of people are drawn to what you just described. And I, I love the way you phrased it. To pick up on that point is that I, as I sometimes say to people, you know, at some point, 50,000 years from now, we may evolve into floating heads. But until that happens, we all have this what memory or sometimes more than one memory of when we did something. It's a look, look, mom, look at what I made. And whether it's a popsicle stick thing or it's your first coding project, whatever all these things are, we all have that experience. And that tangible experience of seeing you, you're a part of something that then is used again is just cool. You mentioned before that Rodon is a third generation business and been in the industry for more than 60 years. By the way, in today's world, the average life of a business is 20 years, just to put that into perspective for you. It's a remarkable history. Two things, Michael, how do you stay relevant? You've been involved for half the company's life, just about. How do you stay relevant? How do you stay up to speed on what's going on out there, whether it's around new technologies and new strategies? And then how do you help lead your company to stay relevant over that period of time? Yeah, I think it comes down to sort of my personal philosophy, then our family's philosophy, which obviously are very overlapping. And it falls down to three principles. It's be curious, be kind, and be focused. And so when you talk about personal relevance, I think you're always learning. And that's what the be curious is about. It's about what is going on not only in your industry, but in related industries, and generally understanding what some of the mega trends are in the country and the world, and then making them micro to your organization so that you're always learning the best practices across businesses. So that's it. To be kind really is, is that we believe we're members of a community and we have got to be kind and give back to the community. And beyond that, it's be kind to your employees. Understand that you're dealing with people. Understand that people generally are making decisions, not companies, even though they obviously work for companies. And so if you're kind to your customers, if you're kind to your vendors and suppliers, that over time you have this immense reservoir of goodwill that allows you to continue to function much more efficiently. And then at the end of all that is what are you going to focus on? So yes, we can learn about a lot of things in the world. And then we chose to focus on you know, from the outgrowth of Generation 1 who was in rubber products, then morphed into plastic products, and then the plastic products morphed into what are the segments within that that we think we can add the most value. So what problems are we solving? And we're focused on solving problems with our kind of expertise. And so it's the balance of that, of the curiosity, the kindness, and the focus that allows me to stay relevant, I think allows our business to stay relevant, allows our family to stay involved at the levels that make sense for us and position us for the future. Yeah, beautifully said, Michael. I'll tell you something. As somebody who's had the good fortune of being able to visit your facility several times, that's not just a slogan. 
And and I say that genuinely. I, I talk to companies and we've all got these slogans that we sloganeer around. That culture comes through, whether it's being greeted at the front or working with various people around your companies. So that, that's really uh, inspiring. And it's great to see that you and the family have turned that into a practice, not just a slogan. Thank you. One of the other things that is impressive is the level of innovation that the company continues to work through through the years. And obviously over 60 years, there's been a lot of different innovations. How do you balance that, you know, the kind of day-to-day of what currently keeping the lights on with new initiatives and new offerings? And you have a, a still relatively new one in Sildry. Maybe that's a good example, Michael, but how do you balance that? There's a few things uh, we look at, but when I think about how we filter those decisions, I try to think of it as putting on a show. And so the show needs to be important to the audience. And so we're constantly saying, who's our audience today? Are we happy with that? What other audiences would we like, if any? What's important to them? And can we deliver a show? In this case, our show is products. Products in a, in a way that would be ma- meaningful to them. And then is the size of the audience big enough that it matters to our business? Because if only three people care about it, it's not going to be meaningful enough. So that's how we filter our decisions. And so that allows us to say, okay, on a day-to-day basis, is our audience happy? And we check in regularly with our customers and uh, are seeing what it is that they're doing. And maybe because we're a custom injection molder, uh, we get to see a cross-section of industries. And so sometimes we can learn from one industry and ask questions of another and provide innovation in that way. So as we think about our future and where do we want to go, it's what audiences do we want next and what are the biggest audiences? And that did lead to Sildry. So we've, we got into the making of parts for the window industry in about 2008, 2009, uh, because we viewed it as an audience that was meaningful because it's you know roughly 50, 60 million windows are installed in the country every year. Uh, we viewed it as one that was likely to be, be stable because it's almost impossible to offshore the making of windows because of their weight. And therefore, it's worth investing in for the long term. And so we built a nice business. And then we said, what else can we do with that audience? And so we then were open to that idea and then came across our partner, who's now our partner in Soldry and our the co-inventor of the product, who had been living on the construction side of the business, only in construction for the last 30 years. And that's how we ended up developing this, this Silpan flashing solution that now we, we sell under the company name Soldry. So it's all started with, though, what audiences do we want? which some people would say in the most common parlance, what markets do you want to be in? But I like thinking just in terms of a show, because I think in thinking in those terms means that you have to actively be talking to your audience and understanding what it is. The rise of Netflix has largely been driven by their ability to understand the niches of their audience and how big they are and how to provide content to them. And so I think our content just happens to be plastic parts that make their businesses run and they would fall apart without them. And so it makes it easier for us to think about opportunities because we're always focused on is our current audience happy and what more could we do to make them happier? And then what other audiences could we be serving? Putting on a show is a metaphor that is absolutely going to stick with me, and I'm going to shamelessly uh, plagiarize you on that one. Okay. I think that's fantastic. And really, I think it's a great metaphor to think about. As you were making that specific decision, and I'm sure there's been many others, as you think about the business decision, was there a moment where you felt you had enough data to make the decision? Sometimes in business, you know, people use the 75% rule is what you hear bandied about a lot, meaning 
we make a decision when we have 75% of the data available. You can't ever really have 100% because that would mean the market's too mature and there's probably not an opportunity for me. Do you look at it that way? And, and would you have a number in mind where you felt before you hit the green light around Sildry, you had a certain level of data on the market opportunity? Yeah, we, t- we really try to take a common sense approach. And I've also heard the 75% rule. And cause how do you know if you have 75% of the data? All you can know is that you never have 100%. To me, not a helpful metric because unless you know what the whole universe of data is, where's your percentage? But what we do do is well, also take a common sense approach and at least try to get a, as much objective data as we can in a reasonable period of time. And for us, that's usually for a course of a few months about what was, you know, the size of the prize. So for still dry, it's easy. We thought it was pretty easy. It's 50 to 60 million windows and doors are installed in the country every year. Yeah, so that's a big market. We, right. Do we think we can capture a reasonable piece of that? And, you know, because we had been making window parts for a number of years, we felt comfortable that that was a real number because sometimes you can look up a number and it's inflated by a lot. But in this case, it's not. It's real. You know, we as we look at that, Ed, we look at food and beverage as an area that we focus on because we can easily see that, you know, food and beverage and consumables like those are, you know, in a country of 300 million people is billions of units a year. So, again, the, the size of the prize is. Yeah. And then we'll do our own, you know, so we focus more on the financial piece, which is what's it going to cost us to make it? If we sell nothing, can we afford it to take this risk? So what's the investment and how long would it take us to dig out of it if we were a complete flop? And so if we can dig out of it, you know, within a couple of years, if it's a complete flop, then all, you know, as long as we obviously think it's a good opportunity, then we'll move forward. When I face decisions on behalf of our company and you go through this and every once in a while, someone will say, well, what's your, what's your level of assurance on the market opportunity here? And I always kind of laugh with that and sort of say, you know, it's over 50%. Let me say that. Right. right. So, you know, we've hit a tipping point. Yeah. I think it's, only in retrospect, do you know, like, I think that absolutely all, all you can do is put yourself in the best position to succeed. And you think you're putting yourself, as you said, you know, you're more likely to succeed than not. You wouldn't make the decision unless you're insane to do it, unless you think you're more likely to succeed than not. So you're going to make rational, logical decisions based on your review of the market, your review of the competition, your review of what you think your differentiation is. And as I touched on earlier, who's the audience you're trying to serve and why do you think they'll pick you over all their other choices? And once you've answered those questions, you go. And then only a year or two down the road will you know how correct you were. Well, I think it's particularly smart though too, Michael, that you all have a disciplined process for risk mitigation, meaning if we take this bet and it doesn't pan out, and and unfortunately you do have to make those kinds of analysis, hey, it's not going to crater our company, right? Right. So we can can dig out from it. And I think that is, I, I always use the risk profile of start with, if it absolutely doesn't work, will it crater the company? If the answer to that is yes, it's too big a risk to take. Michael, over 60 years, obviously there is a ton of things that Rodon Group has done to stay relevant and and ahead of the competition. You've noted that be curious, be kind, be focused. Are there a couple of other things that you would look back across the history of the company, maybe before you joined, but also through to your current leadership tenure there that the company has, has used to stay relevant and ahead of the competition? Sure. In the more recent times, in the last decade I think, in particular, and then I'll touch on some that, are, that have gone on for, for longer, but in the last decade, it relates to my audience point. It's been about taking advantage of digital media and figuring out how to create and put yourself in front of your potential contacts who you could not otherwise effectively and efficiently 
call on in any other way. And I think we live in a time, and some of that's scary, right? Because what Facebook can personalize is, is crazy. But, but privacy issues aside for the moment, what you can do in a business environment, in a, in a moral business environment, is get to your people who might want your goods or services in a, in a more targeted and efficient and cost-effective way than ever before in the history of the world. I mean, we all remember, or at least you and I will remember, we're old enough, that the old adage used to be, I know 50% of my marketing budget is going to be wasted. I just can't tell you which 50%. Well, we're not in that world anymore. And, you know, you can now, I don't, I don't know if you're at 95% yet, but you're, you know, you're getting close to that where you can, you have to do some experimenting and then you have to, you know, do a certain number of campaigns and all that. But once you start doing that, you modify, repeat, modify, repeat, and then get better at honing and getting in front of people and staying in front of people. And so I think that to me has been a big differentiator for us. You know, we decided in, you know, maybe 2010 that we wanted to be found first everywhere for people that are, you know, we're in a kind of a niche, but, you know, if you want injection molding, we want to be found first. We want a shot yep. at it. We want to be able to, we want to have the opportunity to say no or yes. And so that, that to me, I think over the last, you know, since 2010 has been the biggest driver. We've generated millions and millions and millions of dollars of business by doing that. And I'm convinced we wouldn't be nearly as successful as we are without it. Not to say that you can't do other some, you know, sales reps have a role and distributors have a role. And, but I think that for any middle-sized business that can't afford the infrastructure of, you know, a 10, 20, 30 person sales team or higher, this allows you to get to your potential people just on a very an incredibly efficient way. So then I'll go back beyond that. The efficiency part is part of our culture. And so I think a lot of the other things we do are focused around efficiency. And we have a saying around here, and I'm sure you've heard the saying in other places too, we don't get 100% better at anything, but we get a 1% better at 100 things every year. And that's sort of our mindset. Is it? And part of that is why we went after the ISO certification years ago. And that ISO process, which is a very process-oriented certification, is about getting a little bit better and having a little bit less waste in every part of your facility every year. And that's why we ended up being, for example, landfill free, because we thought, well, why, what are we going to do with all this trash? We have a little bit of trash. We do, well, now we can send that to a trash to steam facility and turn it into energy and get paid for our trash instead of having to pay for someone to pick it up. As an example, well, how do we recirculate the water so that we can lower our water bill? And it's also a little bit cleaner for the environment. How do we recycle all of the plastic resin that we use so that it's not wasted and ends up in a landfill? You know, why do we keep the lights the way we keep them so that they're on motion detectors, so that they're not on if no one's working in that area? You know, all those things, they're good for profitability, they're good for the environment, and no one thing would make your business. But all of those things together and the mindset that we can do a little bit better every year, I think really is a driver for us. I think the 1% better, I'm super impressed with that. And I can see the impact. I've never heard you explain that as a tenant of the company, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, one of the books I have gifted the most over the last year and a half is a book called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear. Mm -hmm. And it is all about the idea of incremental improvement and the idea that you don't have to be an expert at anything from day one, but just that idea of 1% and the compounding interest of that. Your reference before that you officially took the, the company over in, in, in and around the 2009 timeframe, timing is everything. I'm yep. sure that was a thrilling experience to go through uh, a, a major recession. Talk a little bit about, because over 60 years, the companies had to navigate those waters before. What advice would you have for folks that aspire to run a company like yours 
perhaps maybe earlier in their careers or, or even veterans that have been around a while. You know, what, what lessons might you share about weathering those difficult times and how you helped get the company through some of those difficult times? So with, with regard to difficult times in particular, it's all about preparation. So it's if you wait until the difficult time comes to figure out what you're going to do, then you probably won't make it through those times. And so it, it's trying to understand for your particular business, what's driving my business today? You know, what could hurt my business dramatically and how ready I am for those shocks and having some idea of what to do forward. You know, the plans will have to shift because whatever plans you have will have to shift. But have you gone through the exercise, for example, of, okay, we, for example, run a three-shift, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week business. Okay, if if business gets loses by 30% and we shut down what shift, what does that look like? What does that, how does that mean to people? What does that mean to equipment? What does that mean to overhead? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so do a little disaster planning so that you can think through how you would handle some mega shocks to your business. What if you lost your biggest customer? What would happen to you? Does your biggest customer make up 1% of your business or 30% of your business? Do you even know? Like, you know, those kinds of things. Like asking those questions with you and your team is that. Now related to that, and this isn't necessarily because of a disaster scenario, is a philosophy that I've come to call strategic laziness. And by that, I mean, I don't want to do everything. I don't have time to do everything. And so what I'm focused on is finding people who are better at what they specifically do than I do. And so that they can go take care of those things and build a team that allows you to sleep at night and focus on, hopefully, the future of the business. I think my role primarily should be about where are we going and hire great people to take care of where we are and then bring them along to where we're going so that they can see why we're asking them to do these newer things. And so if you build an organization that way, then when the disaster comes, you can come around the table with your team and say, okay, guys, you're experts at your areas. We've talked about what a disaster might look like. Now we're in one. Do we still like that or do we want to do something else? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, I mean, I have a, I had a great VP of ops who retired and who said, and this is not his statement, but I, I like memorable is, you know, failure to plan is planning to fail. And that's it. I mean, I think it's boring in some ways, but if you don't ever plan, then unless you have an enormous financial cushion, the shocks are going to take you down. Uh, one yes. more practical thing that I would add is so most companies and we're in that boat, right? We have a bank. And we have a line of credit and we have outside vendors, suppliers, et cetera. But the bank's the most important because the, without money to the, the fuel the business, you, you can't run the business. So we make sure for the, the course of our thing that our bankers are our partners and they know what's going on in good times and not as good times. And we meet with them regularly and we make sure so that when the Great Recession hit, we didn't lose our line of credit. Right. A lot of businesses did because they just the bankers weren't comfortable. They just didn't know what was really going to go on in these businesses. And did they have a plan? And did they trust the people enough? And so they were happy to lend to them when things were good and happy not to lend to them when things weren't so good. I think that's a big piece for most businesses. So keep your bankers, your investors, if you have them, informed of what's going on in a regular routine way. Because relationships take time to build and trust takes time to build. I heard this other expression, the phone call full of expressions, but it's, it's the, you know, that I like that I stuck with me, which is you can only proceed at the speed of trust. And when you really got to go fast, there better be a lot of trust. And usually in disasters, you got to go fast. 
Well, and, and Michael, isn't that most acutely true, you know, when, when you're talking money? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's a business to business relationship. These are people's livelihoods. These are their careers. You know, people don't make these decisions quickly or simply or casually. And, right. and it does require a relationship and trust. Really super good advice. I'm going to segue into our final two questions, Michael. Sure. It's been a great conversation. These are questions we ask all of our guests on the podcast. So the first one is, what's the one thing that you wish more people understood about manufacturing? The one thing I would say about manufacturing is how creative you can be in manufacturing. It's really a part of the creative economy. You're constantly using a combination of your brain, your creativity, your innovation to create new products, and then your hand skills to be able to obviously make them. Working with, most cases, with robotics and automation means that it's a brilliant combination of creativity and physical skills that I think is underappreciated by the conventional discussions I hear about manufacturing. I think you're spot on. Last question. If you could put one sentence on a billboard that expresses your personal philosophy, what would it say? I think it's back to where I began. It's be curious, be kind, be focused. To learn more about Michael Ayrton, the Rodon Group, and how to balance the advancement of your multi-generational company while preserving the roots of your family business legacy, check out the resources provided in the show notes of today's podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Michaela Tierney and Lindsay Gilder. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us to continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is recorded at Five Penn Plaza in the heart of New York City, where Thomas has been headquartered for 122 years. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.